Today's reading is from the book of Luke. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. To the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from the one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you. And from the one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies, and do good, and lend, expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. This is God's word. Amen. Thank you, Erica. Good morning. My name is Drew Bennett. I'm one of the pastors here at Church of the Redeemer. We continue this morning in our series through the Gospel of Luke, and in particular, uh, these few weeks in uh, this, looking at this Sermon on the Plain, not the Sermon on the Mount, the Sermon on the Plain in Luke's Gospel, uh, where Jesus lays out his vision for what he calls the Kingdom of Heaven. These are powerful, powerful words. Uh, you can feel them even as we read them. It almost would do to read it and sit down and just say, we ought to just go to prayer. Let's just start praying. Uh, but we have to deal with this. Uh, we have to deal with this because it's here. Uh, and he means for us to take it seriously. And so we're going to try to do that this morning. Obviously, it's a sermon about marriage, right? Love your enemies and do good to those who insult you. It's a sermon about marriage and friendship and the kingdom of heaven. The new society, the new society that Jesus has come to create. And what we, what we are given here, this is the way I want you to think about this. What we're given here in these verses is a proficiency that if we could become proficient, a proficiency for flourishing in all of the relationships in our lives, the ability to do what Jesus says, to respond to being hurt with love and forgiveness, to meet hate with love and to be able to endure through suffering and still love the person who's doing these things to us. How would our lives change if we could be proficient at that? I mean, I really, I really was struck. Jeff said it just a minute ago when the 21 Coptic Christians were beheaded and the people who did it sent a letter, a notice to the nation of the cross. And that's what we are. We are the nation of the cross. And no more is that really put on display for us than in the kind of life that Jesus calls us to hear in these verses. And his teaching goes something like this, that the distinguishing characteristic of a Christian is an uncommon love for others, a love for our enemies, a love that gives and expects nothing in return, a supernatural, <clears throat> excuse me, spirit-generated love. In a parallel passage in Matthew's Gospel and his Sermon on the Mount, Jesus puts it this way, he says, what more are you doing than others? What more are you doing? And so Christians do more. Christians, a Christian is a person who has so come into contact with the Lord Jesus Christ that that person has resources, power, and emotional wealth, and so forth that make things that would otherwise be absolutely impossible, they're now possible. 
Christians are people that love in such a way that they stand in stark contrast and relief to the rest of the world. And in fact, this is why the world tends to hate those the most whose lives become the most like what these words Jesus gives us today say our lives should be. So three things this morning as we try to wrestle through this passage and and begin to try to fathom what they might mean for our lives. I want you to see, and they're just the three points of the outline that I gave you there in your worship folder. A call to love this morning is first the call to love your enemy. Secondly, not only to love your enemy, but to love ultimately like we have been loved. The measure of our love is to love others and love one another the way we have been loved by God in Christ Jesus. But then lastly, to love as sons. Those are really the three kind of features that Jesus gives us here. And it really is the scope of the love that we're to show the source of the love that we're to show, and the shape of the love that we're to show. And so we have a sermon with three points that all start with the same letter, which just means awesomeness this morning, okay? So I hope you're ready. The scope, the shape, excuse me, the scope, the source, and the shape of the love that Jesus calls us to here. So let's just start first with the scope. And look there in verses 27 and 28. Love your enemies and do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. This is this is this uncommon, you know, the uncommon supernatural love. See, there is, there's a common natural love of one person to another. And then there is an uncommon and supernatural love, and God requires the uncommon love. That's what Jesus says. Now let me explain. Okay? Look down a little bit further in the passage where Jesus begins to say, If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those that love them. And, and if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do this too. And if you lend from those, you know, from others, excuse me, and, um, excuse me, and if you lend to those and then you expect a return, what credit is that to you? Again, even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. Now, Jesus says that there's a kind of love that even, quote, unquote, in an NIV, if you have an NIV, it's probably, quote, unquote, sinners, Show to one another. And the word sinner means a person who's not a Christian, who doesn't have God's spirit living inside of them, or an irreligious person. Even sinners love those who love them, Jesus says. There's nothing special about that. That's really the way he's saying, big deal. So what? So you help a friend that you know will pay you back. What's the big deal about that? That doesn't make you any different from anybody else. That's what he's saying. And so there's this common, natural love. And if we could describe it, I would describe it like this. It really, it really revolves around these two things. Uh, Jesus says that we have a, a common tendency to hedge our love of other people by really kind of assigning these two categories to it. First, making sure that there are limits. Right? Making sure there's a limit. And then secondly, making sure it's a good investment. And that's really what helps us to feel safe, right? I can feel safe as long as I know I only have to love certain people and I can be reasonably confident that at some point in the end, it's going to pay off. I can stay in control. I can decide when and where and who and under what conditions. And Jesus says, what benefit is that to you? And the Greek word in that phrase, repeated three times in verses 32 through 34, is actually the Greek word, which means grace. What grace is that? Or that doesn't really come from grace. That kind of love doesn't require any heart transformation. It's what all of us do. It's our natural inclination, which means it's actually something that's sinful. That's what Jesus is saying. 
So when Jesus says even sinners do that, another way of saying this would be to say, you're being motivated. He's, he's describing this the way we normally relate to one another in our flesh, in the, just the common way that we normally relate to one another. And he's saying, uh, you're, you're motivated and you're doing even these good things to one another by the same selfishness that mo- motivates all the other sins in your life. If you love only those who love you, if you do good to someone hoping they will do good to you in return, or if your generosity is motivated by the payoff, it may look like love, but it's really just selfishness. You're being motivated by the natural selfishness of the human heart and not grace that transformed. There's, there's a love that looks like love, but at the bottom it's really all about you. That's what Jesus is teaching. That's not love. It's selfishness playing dress up in love's clothes. So there's a common love, common love that Jesus demands, that, that Jesus says is true of all of us. But then there's a kind of love that he demands that's something more. And it's far more terrifying. <laughs> love your enemies, he says. Do good to those who hate you and bless those who curse you and pray for those who abuse you. So you see, on the one hand, look at the categories of people that Jesus directs us to in those verses. Enemies. Those who hate you, those who curse you, those who abuse you. These are people, in case you didn't catch it, who we would never choose to move towards in love on our own. So Jesus' teaching is this. There's absolutely no limit. Nobody's off limits. He says, love your enemies. Have them on your heart. Do good to them, he says. In other words, don't just love them in theory, but resolve to meet their needs and help them in practical ways. Bless them. Don't wish for their destruction, but wish and work for their success and flourishing. Pray for them, he says. Ask God to work in their life and hope for change and be hopeful for them and and root for them. That's what he's calling us to here. He goes on to say, love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. So not only is... Are there no limits? Nobody's off limits for what he calls us to here, but, but there's no guarantee of a safe investment in this kind of love either. Love like this, and you're going to lose. You're going to be taken advantage of. It's going to be unbalanced. You're going to give way more than you're going to receive in return. And that's why it takes grace. To love like this is an evidence of grace in your heart, you've, that you've been changed at a deep, excuse me, deep level, if you're able to pull this off. You're no longer motivated by selfishness and sin, which is natural, which is the way so many of our relationships go. But now, instead, you sincerely, unselfishly desire the good of the other person. And that is absolutely supernatural. Is this starting to make sense? And I know Jesus means for us to take it seriously because beginning in verse 29, he gives us four very brief illustrations of the kind of thing he has in mind. So look there. Uh, So in case we were wondering what this might begin to look like, he says, verse 29, to the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. Now, this is not an attack. This is a, a, a slapping. It's an insult to slap a person on the cheek. And so Jesus is saying, when you're insulted, don't retaliate. Don't defend yourself. Don't try to get the last word. Just be quiet. He might as well have said, grow wings and fly to Zimbabwe. I'm serious. Did you hear me? When you're insulted, when you're insulted, don't retaliate, don't defend yourself, don't try to get the last word, just be quiet. Suffer the wrong and seek forgiveness. Be willing to be vulnerable. Love is vulnerable. It keeps moving towards 
the other person, even if it means being mistreated. It keeps longing for a relationship, even when there's hurt feelings. That's what, when somebody slaps you in the cheek and insults you, don't walk away, but turn the other and risk. Continue to move towards them in vulnerability. From the one, he says, who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either, verse 29. So when someone is taking away something from you, when you experience loss, don't grasp at the rest of your life. Uh, when somebody takes advantage of your kindness, don't stop being kind. The third example, give to everyone who begs from you, verse 30. Everyone, the everyone's emphatic, everyone. Be ready to meet people's needs without prejudice, even when it becomes overwhelming because it's coming at you from every side. Don't do generosity until you're spent and then you quit. Keep going even after you've got nothing left. That's what he's saying. And from the one who takes away your goods, verse 30, do not demand them back. Don't live for the payback. Trust God to provide for you. These are the kinds of things. Now, I know, if you're like me, I know what you're thinking. I got to the end of that list this week in my preparation, and I immediately began to say, okay, time out. Right? Time out. I need some help here. Where's the balance? Do I just let people walk all over me? I mean, I get it, right? Love. I'm supposed to love. But what about truth? What about, you know, what about not letting people take advantage of you? All these kinds of things. Of course, we need wisdom. But what we do is we often jump right to those kinds of conclusions and dismiss what Jesus is saying instead of wrestling with it. And even the commentators do this when they try to make sense of Jesus' teaching here. They immediately refuse. What They'll do something like they refuse to take him literally or take his words at face value and look for some kind of argument for why he must certainly mean that we don't have to do the very things he commands us to do here. This is what we do. Right? And I want to say, don't do that. Can we not do that? Can we hear what he has to say to us in the sermon and wrestle with it without beginning to immediately try to explain it away. And here's the way I would encourage us to do this. This is just my one word of admonition as we try to make sense of what it is that Jesus would ultimately call us to here. Can we go? Go into this verse. Go into it until you get to the place where you're really uncomfortable. I mean, here's the way I would have us wrestle. When you start to apply these commands in your life, go until you begin to feel really uncomfortable. And then, don't stop. Keep going. Okay, keep going past that. So, for an example, love your enemy. So, of course, love your in-laws. I don't like that, right? But, okay, you know, okay, great, for the sake of my wife, we can do that, okay? Keep going. Love your ex-wife. Now you're getting a little ridiculous. Okay, but for the sake of the kids, even there, I'm willing to think about that. We keep going. Love the Islamic State. Okay, I, there's where I get off the train. I can't go there. And what I want to say to you is, is, is that it's at that place, right there, where your heart does that. Right there is where this, this sermon would begin to do its work with you. Right there. And if you, if you'll keep going, if you'll keep pressing, if you'll keep wrestling with the implications of the scope of what Jesus calls us to hear. And if you'll take seriously after those four applications in verses 29 and 30, the summary statement in verse 31, which is the golden rule, as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. So whatever the specifics, this is the general rule. However you're trying to apply these things, all of your personal applications should meet this condition. If they don't, it doesn't count. It's not love. It's just selfishness in disguise. Selfishness is me first, then you. Love is you first, then me. The one is natural, just looks good. The other is supernatural.
So the second thing, then, that we learn from this, this text, these verses, is not only the scope, really, to love all the way out you know, to my enemies and those who persecute me and, and insult me and hurt me, but we also, thankfully, can see the source of this kind of love. And what we see is that it doesn't come from us. It's something, because it's supernatural, it's something that must come from a supernatural source. And here's the way I want to say it, and this is really the take-home this morning, if you hear nothing else. You have to be loved like this before you can love like this. That's ultimately what Jesus means to teach us. That's the doctrine, that you have to be loved. Like, you have to know that you've been loved like this before you can begin to love like this. You see what I'm trying to do this morning? I'm, I'm trying to say to us, at, at our very best moments, in the middle of our loving and lending and doing good, in a way that most of us are probably not even aware of, we're actually sinning because a lot of what we're doing, we're doing from a motivation of selfishness. Jesus means for these verses to uncover this. And so in a parallel passage in, Luke's, in, in Matthew's Gospel, which we read, Jeff read to us as a call to worship, his Sermon on the Mount, he quotes Jesus as saying, unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. And, and that really is, Jeff, you're right, that really is laughable. I mean, it is like answering a classified ad for a roommate and being told you have to be a better homemaker than Martha Stewart. Or calling up to Gainesville for season tickets and somebody actually saying to you, you know, you need to be a bigger booster than the Ben Hill Griffin family. That really is what, I mean, that really is what it is. Jesus is saying, you can't do this without me. It's impossible. Your heart has to be supernaturally transformed by my love. That's the only way to have a marriage that sings. It's the only way to have friendships that are really great. Our hearts have to be supernaturally transformed by his love. So Jesus would say, don't make this sermon into a rule you have to follow. That's not how the law works. In describing the love that we should show to others, he is describing the way that he has loved us. It's a biblical principle, right? 1 John four nineteen: we love because what? If you've been around, you know, because he first loved us. So what that means, we are not the source of his love. He's the source for ours. Let me say that again. We are not the source for his love. He is the source for ours. He does not love us because we first loved him. We love because he first loved us. His love is the fountain. Ours is the stream that flows from the fountain. Therefore, the only way to love your enemy is to know that you've been an enemy and you've been loved. You can't do good to those who hate you unless you see how God has done good to you when you hated him. See, here's the question. Did Jesus die for you when you were his friend? Or did he die for you when you were his enemy in order to make you his friend? Oh, it makes all the di- I'm, that makes all the difference in the world how you answer that. Which is it? Did he die for you, when you because you were his friend, or did he die for you when you were his enemy to make you his friend? And Romans 5 is what tells us how we answer. Romans 5, which we read also, one will scarcely die for a righteous person, Paul says, though perhaps for a good person one would dare to even die, but God shows his love for us in this, that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. While we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. That's amazing. In my desire to make a name for myself, I have insulted and blasphemed him. And he has turned the other cheek and continued to move towards me in love. In my greed, and I mean, I'm talking personally, in my greed, 
and my selfishness I've taken from him and then complained about his gifts and been ungrateful and wished for more or for different, and he has continued to do good to me. In my rebellion, in my wanting to control my life, I've hated him, I've hated his working in my life, I've resented him, I've not trusted him, I've been full of anxiety and fear about the things that he's doing, and yet he continues to move towards me to bless me because Jesus did not die for the good people, he died for sinners. And God does not love only the deserving. His kindness extends even to the ungrateful and the evil. He is merciful. You say, how can I be sure? Well, on the cross, as he hung there dying, a curse for our sins, Jesus was cursed by the crowds, but in response he blessed. And he was insulted by them, and he prayed, and he forgave. So Jesus turns to us, and he's not saying, please, listen, he's not saying, be like this. This is how you should live. That's not the message of this sermon. He's not even saying, hey, be like this because I'm like this. Really, at the bottom, what he's saying to us this morning is this, be like this because I'm going to be like this for you. You see, the righteousness that exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees then is a love for others that's not sourced in them but in God's love for me in Christ. He, he, I'm not the source of his love for me. He's the source of my love. In the same way, I do not love you because you first loved me. I love you because Christ has loved me. And that's very different. That's the key. That's the competency for all flourishing in relationships. I do not love you like you love me. I love you like Christ has loved me. Your love, see, you, your love is not the reference for my love for you. Your love for me is not the source of my love for you. God's love for me in Christ Jesus is the source of my love for you. And that's the supernatural part. And that's what makes these words that Jesus says here that are so difficult possible. Now let me try to explain, okay? Let me try to explain the difference. If your love for me is the source of my love for you, then I have the strength to love because as long as everything's going well, you know, I'm full and you're doing a pretty good job of caring for me and so I can respond. So if your love for me is the source of my love for you, then for the most part I have the strength to love, but only as long as you keep loving me and as long as you're doing your part. But the moment that you stop loving me, the moment I'm not receiving from you what, you, you know, what I think I'm supposed to give, it's like shutting the water off. Right? If your love is the supply for my love, then when you stop loving me, I have no more resources to keep loving you. And that's the way most of our relationships work. That's why people end up in my office. You know? In great conflict. But if God's love for me, in Christ, is the source of my love for you, then even when you stop loving me, I can keep loving you, even if you never love me back. And that is what the Apostle Paul meant when he talked in Galatians about faith energizing or faith working, energizing love. God's love for me, energizing my love for you. So this sermon has so many applications, doesn't it? Difficult relationships and marriage and all of these things. And Jesus is pointing us to the possibility of a love in friendship, in marriage, in community with one another, in strained relationships where there's hostility and conflict. There's a possibility of a love that is supernaturally empowered and envisioned by God's great love 
to us. And if you're having trouble somewhere in your life with loving someone, a friend, a coworker, a spouse, whatever it might be, it's because, let me, it's because the trouble comes from this, is that you've turned to some other source other than the gospel and the water's been shut off and so you've got nothing left. Christian love is supernatural because it doesn't depend upon the fickle, fluctuating love of man, but instead the never-ending, all-satisfying love of God for us in Christ. Okay, but lastly. So we've seen the scope that we're to love our enemies, all the way out to our enemies. We've seen the, the, um, the source that we're to love as we've been loved, and so the power for doing the, for these things doesn't come from us, but lastly, uh, we are to love as sons. And that's the shape. That's the shape of the life that Jesus calls us to. Verses 35 and 36 again. Love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great and you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful even as your Father is merciful. And that's really, that last line is, is the summary of the entire passage. So we're to love as sons. And to be a son means that we bear family resemblance to the Father in heaven. It's inevitable. You know, it's inevitable. We talk about this in my house all the time. But it's inevitable no matter how hard we might fight against it that we will all become our parents. And for some of us, that is exhilarating. For others of us, it's absolutely horrifying. Okay, my poor boys, because I grew up in this town, are subject to strangers walking up to us at all times in the grocery store who knew me when I was their age and, they, and who love to say things. They always hear things like, well, you're a little Drew Bennett if I've ever seen one. And they kind of look at me like, I have no idea what she's saying, but that doesn't sound like a good thing. Right? Or he looks just like you when, 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 you, you, know, when you were his age. And it's true. It's remarkable. It really is remarkable to watch them even go through the same stages of development that I did. From chubby cheeks at a certain time, uh, and then braces, and then a sudden growth spurt at a certain age. I mean, my boys, if you've seen them, they not only look like me, but they look like me at eight years old when I was eight. And then they look at 14 years old like me when I was 14. And I know, and I know, I don't think Isaac's here, but I know, you know, I said, I know what they're thinking. I sure hope I don't look like you when I'm 40. And I do too. Listen, <laughs> I really do too. I'm praying for that, okay? We're, t- we're talking about those things. But this is the natural way of things that we share. We share a genetic, a similar genetic material that creates a family resemblance. Now, if you're a Christian... Uh, part of the experience of becoming a Christian is what we call regeneration. You can't be a Christian unless you've experienced a, a new birth. Being born again is the way the Bible talks about it. So in regeneration, God gives you a new heart and a new spirit. He plants a spiritual, a new spiritual DNA in your life. The spiritual DNA of Jesus himself. And as inevitable as it is that my sons will become me because they share my DNA. If you've had a conversion experience... It means you will become like the Father because you share his spiritual DNA. There will eventually, maybe it's just one day, but there will eventually be this family resemblance. Now, the best, the best part of this passage for me is when we, when we begin to consider what this DNA is like that's in us. And we see it down there in the verses that I quoted, verses 35 and 36, that we'll be sons of the Most High in verse 35, but in the very next verse, he says, be merciful even as your Heavenly Father is merciful. And so I just want to finish with this thought. The Most High is a Father. 
That's what Jesus teaches. The Most High is a father, and that means that his very essence is love. Jesus refers to God as the Most High, verse 35. It's a term that describes all the qualities of his divinity, his his eternality, his all-knowingness, his being all-powerful. And in the very next verse, he says that he's a father. So the Most High is father, and that means that his very essence is self-giving love. I'm currently reading a book that's really just destroying me. Could not recommend it more highly. It's called Delighting in the Trinity by Michael Reeves. And he spends a lot of time describing how God as Trinity is really the key to understanding the theological and worldview differences between Christianity and, you know, Islam, for example. So if, like many of the ancient mythologies and and theologies, even Islam today assert God is one, if God is not Trinity, then before creation he was all alone. For eternity he was a solitary God, and this solitary God, the Most High, Allah, the Most High, would have had nobody and nothing to love, so then love for others could not be his heartbeat. He must love himself, but by his very nature, this lonely, single God must be fundamentally inward-looking and not outgoingly loving, and that really, really explains the residual theology of Islam. But if God is Trinity, as Christians assert, If God is known first and foremost not as creator, not as designer, not even as the most high, but if he is known first and foremost as father, then that means his very essence is overflowing love and generosity. From eternity, the father has been loving the son and the spirit and being loved in return. God is love, writes the apostle John. God loves, yes, of course, but God is love. And C.S. Lewis, I think, captured this really well in Screwtape Letters when Screwtape is describing to his understudy the difference between the devil, and it's really the devil who is uh, the needy and solitary God, the difference between the devil and the living God of ecstatic, self-giving, overflowing love. And these are his words. Screwtape is discipling his young understudy. He says, one must face the fact that all the talk about his love for men is not mere propaganda, but an appalling truth. He really does want to fill the universe with a lot of loathsome little replicas of himself. (laughs) Isn't it great? C.S. Lewis, creatures whose life on its miniature scale will be qualitatively like his own, not because he has absorbed them, but because their wills freely conform to his. This is, we want cattle who can finally become food. He wants servants who can finally become sons. We want to suck in. He wants to give out. We are empty and would be filled. He is full and flows over. The Most High is a father. He is eternally full and flowing over in love. Michael Reeves put it this way. He said, God's very self is found in giving, not taking. His very self. That's who he is. It's not what he does. It's who he is in his essence. His very self is found in giving, not taking. And to become a Christian then, to become a son of the Most High, means that we are brought into the eternal fellowship of the person's of the Trinity, so that on a miniature scale, our lives begin to have the same quality of fullness and overflowing love. That's the promise to us this morning. You can't, you can't, I can't. You can't love your enemies unless you're already full and overflowing. You can't do good to those who hate you and abuse you unless you have access to an endless and ever-replenishing supply of love and grace and forgiveness. And so to be a son of the Most High is to be like the Father in his love. Martin Luther, who was really just making sense of what Augustine had taught a thousand years 
before him said that the sinner is, by definition, a person curved in on himself. The sin is this selfish, inward-looking, self-obsession, empty and needing-to-be-filled state of existence. And this is the person who goes through life needy, trying to get things from other people so they can be filled. They take, they don't give. But the person who has the spiritual DNA of the Father in heaven and the Lord Jesus Christ, his eternal Son in them, their life begins to take a very different shape. Like the Father, the whole of their life is outgoing love and generosity, giving, not taking, even to the ungrateful and the evil. Now stop for a second. Stop for one second. Let's take an honest inventory so we can begin to figure out what repentance looks like for us as we, as we uh, begin to prepare to come to this table. Answer this question. Is the shape of your life taking, not giving? Or is it giving, not taking? How do you know? You want to know how you know? Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. Turn the other cheek. Give to everyone who asks. Lend expecting nothing in return. See, this is why we need this sermon. It envisions for us a life of giving, not taking. More vividly and to a degree we would have never arrived at our own. Gospel goodness that surpasses religious righteousness, eternal life. This is eternal life. The life and love of the Trinity shed abroad in our hearts. It's what he makes possible to every single one of us this morning if we come to him in repentance and faith. There's an old hymn uh, that I would finish with that, that, that puts it this way, and I love these words. Has God a command to fulfill, which nature untoward would shun? Love brings to compliance the will and causes the deed to be done. From Jesus, the blessing must flow to creatures beneath and above. May he his good spirit bestow, and we shall do all things in love. Let's pray together, can we, Father? We thank you that you are one who is merciful. And you're no more merciful to us in the times when we deserve it than you are in the times when we are at our worst, when we take what you've given us, and instead of returning thanks, we complain and we live in ingratitude, or we abuse the gifts that you've given to us selfishly to just make a life for ourselves and, and to fulfill our desire to find a happiness that's apart from you, and yet you have never stopped. You have never stopped in all of the years that we've lived upon this earth. The sun has come up every single day, and it will come up tomorrow too because you are unrelenting. You are unrelenting in your desire to love us and in your intention to love us and the very fact of your loving of us. It is who you are more than it even is what you do. And so we would pray that you forgive us that we so easily fail in the very thing that you intend to make us to be. And we pray yet again that you would lead us in repentance and faith back to you, that we might be filled with your spirit, believing the promises, believing the promises that are laid out for us in this word that we've read this morning, and at this table that we now come to fellowship around together, would you use this time to shape us as sons that we might bear fruit of love toward one another that would be to the good of those that you've called us to and that would ultimately be to your glory. We pray these things in your name. Amen.
And so he sends us, the doors are open already, uh, he sends us out, that's what this part of our service is, but he sends us to do the very things that he's told us to do, to be merciful as he's merciful, to love even our enemies and pray for those who persecute us and the like. The only way, the only way possible is if you go to do that work with that song in your heart. If you go wondering whether he'll be there for you when it gets tough, wondering whether he really does love you, then you absolutely have no shot. No shot. But if you go, having believed in your heart the message of the gospel, that though you were his enemy, Christ died for you to make you his friend. And if you go receiving these words that I get to now pronounce over you, this benediction, this promise, yet again, of his desire to go with us. He says, go into the world and I will be with you always because I love you. If you go knowing that, Uh, then you'll have resources and power that you never dared dream to do this great work of love. And it'll be so beautiful. It'll be so beautiful that it will give him so much glory. And so receive the promise of the benediction. Uh, Feed upon even these words in your heart by faith. uh, And ask God uh, to do this work in you. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. Amen. Go in his peace.